So here we have the introduction to Matthew, and I hope you do have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 1. Now, from the time of Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension, in approximately the year A.D. 30, until about uh, 20 years later, A.D. 50, with the appearance of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians being circulated in the church, there were no writings, there were no writings that uh, survived to be considered in the canon of Holy Scripture. And excuse me while I, I forgot to mute. And there we are. So there were no writings in all of those years, all those 20 years. And then of the Gospels, the first surviving Gospel was, was Mark's. And that came probably in the late 50s, early 60s. And then in the years between, the church enjoyed a, a very strong oral tradition. It had the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry. It had them and the things that they were saying and teaching. And those were remembered and memorized and eventually written down. However, and I was interested to learn this, there was a gospel written by Matthew. You remember Matthew is the tax collector that Jesus called away from the tax office. He wrote a gospel early. He wrote it in Hebrew. And um, it was a collection of the historical sayings of Jesus. He was writing these things down as he and the other apostles were recalling them and sharing them in teachings. This gospel was called the Logia, L-O-G-I-A, I guess in Latin. And it's interesting, in the early church writings, the first couple of centuries, they had many references to it. Evidently, the early church had a number of copies of this uh, early gospel written by Matthew. And uh, they proclaimed and they attested that it was, that's what provided the basic content of the gospel that we have, that we know of by the name of Matthew. Matthew's gospel, it holds the first position of the four gospels in our Bibles. And indeed, it's the very beginning of the entire New Testament. It acts as a, as a link, a bridge from the Old Testament to the New. And it's the basic source of the relationship between the Old and the New Covenants. Sixteen times, Matthew says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and then he would quote the Old Testament prophet. Again, 16 times, nine of them were exactly that, and the rest were very, very similar. That's very significant, the fact that he, he does that, because it's a classic example of the New Testament use of the Old Testament. If you, like my own experience, I've heard many people say that the Old Testament isn't something that Christians need to read, study, or even worry about. And that is patently wrong. It's just wrong. And it's because our faith, built in the New Testament, is based on and is derived from 
the Jewish faith and the Jewish writings, which are the, the Old Testament. Another thing that's significant about his use of the Old Testament prophets is it helps us to see that the events in the life of Christ are fulfillments of prophecies and indeed the total sweep of salvation history that began way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. We'll read that in a moment. The fact that he uses prophets also helps us to understand the identification in Matthew's gospel with the history and the traditions of the Jews. In many ways, it is Matthew who ties their history to Yahweh's plan of salvation and the ongoing evangelization of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. By the way, if I'm speaking funny, it's because I have a sore right at the bottom of my tongue over here and I'm I'm trying to talk around it so I don't bite myself. So Now Matthew's gospel relates the whole of salvation history to its culmination and its wonderful fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. It moves from a Hebrew-centered to a Christ-centered faith. Faith in God and living in observance and obedience to his word. As you think about your reading of the Old Testament, you know that it is very much focused on the Jews. It's focused on what they did, what they did good, what they did bad, what they did wrong. Focused on their, uh, their idolatry and they're coming out of it. It's focused on them. Whereas in the New Testament, as much as we learn about the church in the New Testament, the New Testament is centered on Jesus Christ. And that's important to remember, especially as we go into this gospel. The gospel also reminds us that aside from Luke, and I want you to hear this because we often forget this as we're reading. Aside from Luke, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John are not intended to be chronological histories. They're not intended to be chronological histories. They put items in the life of Christ at certain places depending on how they are approaching his life, what they are giving. And I'll give an example of that in a moment. It's only Luke in his introduction to Theophilus that says he's writing this and presenting this in an orderly, sequential manner. Here in, in Matthew, he relates the story of Jesus' life and his ministry, but he intersperses that <clears throat> with what we might call topical sections, where he combines Jesus' various teachings on, uh, let me see if I can put it up for you so you can see it. On righteousness, Chapter 5, 1 to 729, there's a section that focuses on missions. Chapter 935 to 1042, a section that focuses on the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew calls it both. That's basically chapter 13. Chapter 18 is primarily about the church. And chapters 24 through 2546 are primarily about the end times. So these are presented really as individual discourses. 
it doesn't mean that one day Jesus gave a bunch of parables and then another day he spoke all about the church and so forth. It's Matthew took that information and he put those together so that those topics could be studied individually, topically. They're presented as individual discourses uh, and as the major teachings of Jesus. For example, also the Sermon on the Mount, we know, is presented as three consecutive chapters in Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. <clears throat> in Luke's Gospel, which is chronological, the content of the Sermon on the Mount is spread throughout the gospel. It's not all bunched together. Also, miracles are grouped in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. Um, parables, again in chapter 13, and his teachings in chapters 21 to 25. This characteristic of Matthew made the gospel easier for people to remember and memorize, which was quite helpful in the years before the complete canon of Scripture was completed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Indeed, because of this, Matthew has become known over the centuries as the teaching gospel, and through which he shows us a number of things. He shows us Jesus' radical requirements for discipleship and for obedience to the will of Yahweh. He shows us Jesus' own life, perfect, obedient, sinless, as our model for living up to his moral and ethical demands. Jesus' life is our model for living according to God's word. And he does this, Jesus emphasizes his emphasis rather on the church as the community of faith in which and through which the requirements of Yahweh are learned, studied, and lived. All of these are, are given to us specifically by Matthew. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Now, you've probably heard that Matthew's gospel is only for Jews. I have a good friend who listens to another friend of his who's always coming up with some left field interpretation of Scripture. And it's very, very logical. It always sounds very strong. And unfortunately, my friend buys into it. And I'm glad we have lunch together every couple of months so that uh, I can talk to him about those weird doctrines he picks up on. And one of them is that Matthew is only for Jews. Gentiles have no reason to read it or study it. And, you know, their reason is clearly... Matthew uses the Hebrew scriptures. He uses the Hebrew prophets and their traditions in presenting Jesus Christ as the promised Jewish Messiah. But you see, Matthew does a lot more. And this is what people who present that argument like to uh, ignore. Because there are many positive references to Gentiles in Matthew's gospel. And it shows clearly that we Gentiles need to be reading and studying this gospel. For example, the lineage of Jesus that we'll look at in a few minutes, it includes various Gentile people. Following his birth, Jesus was visited by Gentile sages from the East, what we call the wise men. 
Then to protect his life from Herod, Joseph was told to take Jesus to Egypt, a Gentile nation. Upon their return from Egypt, they didn't live or he didn't grow up in Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism, but in Nazareth of Galilee, which was called Galilee of what? Of the Gentiles. Early in Jesus' ministry, he received the Gentile centurion, a Roman soldier, and he ministered to him and said that he had found greater faith in this Gentile than in the Jewish community. He commended Cornelius. In the same context, Jesus stated that, quote, many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will come from the east and west. In other words, people would come from all over the world because the kingdom of heaven ignores national, tribal, and ethnic borders. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Strong words. Radical words for the Jews to hear. You see, the people of God, that includes you and me, the people of God certainly come from the Judaic tradition. But Yahweh opened his family to include the Gentiles, reaching out into all the world with the gospel. So rather than reading the gospel of Matthew as a Jewish book for only Jewish people, we should see, read, and study it as a book written in the Jewish context to show the roots and the origins of our messianic faith, which now encompasses all who will believe and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Which brings us to the Gospel of Matthew itself. So I hope you have your Bibles open, chapter 1. Because here at the very beginning of the New Testament, we are faced with a genealogy. I know, I know. It's not really our favorite kind of text. But let's read it anyway and see what we can find. Because it is one of the two genealogies of our Lord in the Bible. Another given in Luke. And they're different. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. I'll be reading from the New King James. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Here we go. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. It's not Salmon, by the way. It's Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. 
Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiod, Abiod begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Elihud. Elihud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. There now. Aren't you edified? <laughs> so Matthew begins his gospel by introducing the king, Jesus Christ, as the long-awaited Messiah. And he does so with what was then the most persuasive proof for the Jew, the lineage of the promised Christ. In Jewish history and tradition, the most important way to begin the story of a person's life is to give his genealogy. This passage, which might bore us at first, <clears throat> is of great importance in Jewish history. It has also become very important in our time with things like Ancestry.com and 23andMe and the use of DNA in so many valuable ways. In fact, I have a side story. Uh, during the time of Herod the Great, I'm not sure why he was called the Great, but he called himself that. Herod the Great, he was, he was hated by the pure-blooded Jews because he was half Edomite and half Jewish. He was a despised half-breed. And as a consequence, King Herod had the temple book of records, the room of records, where all of the genealogies of the tribes of Israel, who begot, who begot, who begot, who, all of that for centuries past had been recorded carefully on scrolls. Any Jew could go and question a Levite who could go into that room, come back with a scroll, and show and prove the genealogy of that person. Herod was so ticked off that they all thought they were better than him because they were pure Jews, that he had that room torched and he destroyed centuries of evidence of Jewish genealogy. Fortunately, most Jewish families maintained their own records as well. In Genesis 3.15, I alluded to this a few minutes ago, 
we see the first prophecy of the Messiah. It's spoken by Yahweh himself. And it began the, 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 the passion for genealogy that the Jewish people have and still have. For as, as many centuries, they were always looking for the seed of the woman, the Messiah, who would crush the head of Satan. You remember that from earlier in chapter 3, don't you? When God is confronting Satan, Adam and Eve, and he's rebuking them for their sin, what we call the fall. And he promised, well, he promised this in verse 15. Yahweh was speaking directly to Satan here. And he says, I will put enmity, conflict, friction. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That gave people, that's strange, the seed of Satan and the seed of a woman. The only seed that they were aware of was a seed of man. Men, I mean males. He said, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, many say, but best translation, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was the first prophecy of the Messiah. That was the beginning, if you will, of what will become the genealogy of Jesus. Because the seed of woman could only be interpreted as that virgin birth. Then when Yahweh called Abraham, who was the beginning of this genealogy, Luke's genealogy begins with Adam, when Yahweh called Abraham, he spoke another prophecy which would be fulfilled at the end of this genealogy. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the Lord said to Abraham, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, speaking to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as we know, this blessing of all the earth is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross his gospel, the gospel of salvation. But there is yet another prophecy given by the Lord, which we see fulfilled in this genealogy. I'm going to read three verses. Maybe I can pull them up here for you. Let's see. Let's see if I can grab it. There we go. Yahweh was speaking to David. And he said, And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Then in Isaiah, this is a familiar verse, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, 
from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then finally, Jesus himself. At the end of Revelation, this is the resurrected Lord. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. What we're talking about here is the fact that these prophecies, the prophecy to Abraham that it, through him all the world would be blessed, the prophecy to David that his offspring would be on his throne forever, forever. He promised David that it would be a descendant of his who would sit on the throne as Messiah and as king forever. That's why one of the titles is Son of David. You hear it, I think the, um, the blind men outside of Jericho were calling out to him, Son of David, have mercy on us. That was one of the titles of Messiah. And it's also, he's the son of Abraham. That's why one of the titles is son of David, and why it's so important to see King David in this genealogy. And so we have the very first verse of the New Testament that says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Matthew is very powerfully setting down the historical facts for his primarily Jewish audience at that time. This opening, saying the book of the genealogy of, was a common phrase among the Jews when giving reference to the record of a man's lineage. It was so important because so much about a person was based on his lineage. As I said before, they kept it very carefully. His tribe, his land. We've gone through that with, with, with Joshua. His tribe, where did he come from? His land, what does he have a right to? His property. Whether he was of the priesthood was he a, of the family of Aaron? Or was he of the Levites, the broader family, the broader tribe that served in the temple? It determined whether he had the right to receive his land or property back if he had had to sell it in the year of Jubilee. And ultimately, his lineage would determine whether he was of the line of David. It was their way of maintaining the historical truth and the facts of the nation, along with the Old Testament writings. Interestingly, I, uh, I read of the testimony, very recently really, of a young Hindu man who came to Christ by reading those first 17 verses of Matthew. Now, I'm sure you nor I, in reading that, would see anything evangelistic in there. But this Hindu did. It led him to salvation. He confessed Christ as his Savior, became a Christian, and not a Hindu. When he was asked about what was there about the genealogy that so convicted him, his answer was that for the first time he had found a religion which is actually rooted in history. 
in contrast to the mythology of Hinduism and Buddhism. Actually rooted in history. That's our faith. That's our faith. Now Matthew roots his gospel in solid history, beginning with the lineage of Messiah. You see, it's the lineage of what we call salvation history, which reveals the acts of God over time in history. It reveals his gradual unfolding of the revelation of himself. I don't know about you, but one thing that happens every time I read the Bible through, even just portions of it, more and more, I come to know and to understand God. Every time. There's always more. It's infinite. You're never going to shut that door. It's infinite, but we will understand it because he reveals himself more and more over history as well as through his word. It reveals the fact that he chose the people of Israel as the means through whom he would come incarnate as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Another quite significant fact regarding this genealogy is the importance of women. Prominence is given to five women, or four women who are named, and one other who is clearly identified in the Messiah's lineage. It's not normal to find the names of women at all in Jewish genealogies. Women had no legal rights. They were second-class people in that society at best. And yet at that time, they were the most liberated women on the planet. Lots of laws protected and respected them, but never in genealogies. The presence of these names in the lineage of Christ is a significant affirmation by God of women. When God created man, he, quote, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see why the, the word him or his can be interpreted male or female. Because he created man, meaning mankind, in his image in the image of God, male and female, which is a biblical witness, truly, to equality before God. But why mention these women in contrast to Sarah, who's lauded in, in, in Hebrews 11, that hall of faith? She's not in this list even though it should say Abraham begot Isaac by Sarah. That's what he should, but he didn't. So why? Sarah's not mentioned, but three of the five of these women, at least, at least three, were aliens. They were Gentiles. Also, three were adulteresses. including these women in the lineage of Christ, highlights Yahweh's message of divine grace. I want you to hear that again because it's so important. By including these women, women in the lineage of Christ, it highlights Yahweh's message of divine grace that we see throughout his word. God 
forgave and accepted people in the lineage of Christ whose history was clouded or worse, both men and women. I don't know if you recall, you read in that lineage, you read Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh was the most evil, wicked king in the history of Judah. Hezekiah was one of the best, his father. It also mentions Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Solomon had, what, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and yet the only child of his mentioned in Scripture is Rehoboam. You know he had many other children, but Rehoboam is mentioned in this lineage, and he was an idiot. He was an absolute fool. But he's in the lineage of Christ. The fact that these particular women are named makes it clear that God in grace does not discriminate against people because of past mistakes. I want to say, I want to say that again. God in grace does not discriminate against people because of our past mistakes. That should, that should touch us very deeply with a great deal of thanksgiving. Verse 3 mentions Tamar, of whom Judah begot Perez and Zerah. Tamar was actually Judah's daughter-in-law, and the conception of these sons from Judah took place in an immoral relationship outside of the bonds of marriage. We read that earlier when we read in Genesis 38. And yet Perez, who was illegitimate and therefore, according to Deuteronomy, he was prohibited from the assembly of Israel. And yet he is included by God's grace. In verse 5, we find Rahab. We know her from our recent study of Joshua. She was known as the harlot of Jericho. Also in verse 5, Ruth is included, who was not Jewish. But she was, she was a prohibited Moabitess in that same section of Deuteronomy. No Moabite is ever to be included in the family of Israel. And yet, she's a special exception. Another expression of God's grace and that the law said, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. By the way, that's Deuteronomy 23, verses 2 and 3. And then fourthly, we're told that Uriah's wife, who is not specifically named, but we know it's Bathsheba, and we do not know her ethnicity. And the mother of Solomon, she's included the woman whom David forced into adultery and whose husband, Uriah, he afterwards had killed in an attempt to cover his sin. And then, of course, is Mary. The presence of these five women mentioned in the lineage of the Messiah strongly emphasizes a genealogy of grace. In the final verse of this genealogy, Matthew says something that probably seems odd to us. I know it does to me. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. 
Matthew doesn't explain why he says this, suggesting that perhaps he expected his readers to understand. But if so, that understanding <clears throat> has certainly faded over the centuries to conjecture. That's a nice word for guessing. One prominent explanation comes from a highly respected scholar of our day named Dr. Myra Nogsberger. Here's what he says. He says the lineage of Jesus is presented in three sections with 14 periods for each. This distinctive grouping has a functional purpose. The three groupings correspond to the three great stages of Jewish history. The first stage is the history from Abraham to David, a stage which moves from the call of faith to the period in which David welded Israel into a nation. The second stage covers the history of Israel down to the exile in Babylon, a stage which deals with the interplay between man and God, exposing man's unfaithfulness and the consequent captivity. Interspersed with the captivity was the prophetic word of judgment, of grace, and of hope. The third stage carries the history of Israel from the Babylonian captivity to the birth of Jesus Christ. It shows how the salvation history continued through a remnant of the faithful, focusing on the family of faith through which God entered the world in the incarnation in Jesus of Nazareth. Excuse me. I'm in a quandary because, and I'm sharing it with you, obviously, <laughs> because he refers to the three, three great stages of Jewish history. And that could be an explanation for the breakdown given by Matthew, especially because we know that Matthew purposely manipulated the so-called generations to fit his model. He skipped over many people, kings and others. And at times, he goes from grandfather to grandson. Or in the case of Shealtiel to Zerubbabel, he goes from uncle to nephew. It's believed that his use of the term generation is not so much tied to specific people as to periods of time. And that makes a lot of sense considering how he did this. But, and I'll ask you your opinion. We'll talk about it later. He, in identifying key stages and events of Jewish history, nobody would ignore the 400 years of slavery and the great exodus from Egypt with the giving of the law. That was such a clear demarcation of a stage, of a change. The Jewish people went into Egypt, a large family of 70. They came out a nation of two and a half million. That's a big change over those 400 years. I believe that a better breakdown would be Abraham to the Exodus, the Exodus to David, David to the Babylonian captivity, and then the return from the captivity to the Christ. But even this, it begs the issue, leaving out the divided kingdom, the so-called silent years, the conquest of Alexander the Great, the successful revolt and the reign 
of the Jewish family of the Maccabees. Very soon, this month, we'll be celebrating with or observing our Jewish friends celebrating Hanukkah. Celebrating the events of the winning of that revolt on the Maccabees that occurred between the Testaments. And it leaves out the Roman conquest. So Matthew's use of generations, it's thought to be a teaching method on his part to help people grasp and memorize the sweep of Jewish history. But aside from that, we need to leave this part of Matthew's genealogy uninterpreted. It was and is a solid presentation, though, of the authenticity of the claims of Jesus, the claims of the apostles, and for 2,000 years, the claims of Jesus' church, that he is, in historical fact, and according to Jewish legal requirements, the prophesied and promised Messiah, the Savior of Israel and of all mankind. And Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that even in a text of genealogy, you shine through, Lord, with your wonderful grace. I thank you, Father, that you help us to better understand you by seeing that though the law you gave through Moses was very black and white. You show us that because of your grace, there are exceptions. And exceptions that are so blessed by being in the lineage of our Lord. I thank you, Father, that you clearly show and honor the importance of women. That unlike so much ancient literature, this shows that you see women and men as equal. You certainly didn't create us the same, but you did give us and treat us equally. And that is so important. We thank you, Father, for Matthew and listening to your Holy Spirit as he recorded this genealogy. And for the things that, that we can learn from what seems to be such a mundane listing. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.